The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Welcome to this week's episode of Zach on Film. This week, it is me, Zach, and across the room, Steven Schleicher. Hello. Steven, we uh, went to the movie theater. Yes. Separate times, yes. but we still watched the same movie, right. and that was Alejandro G. Inuratu's The Revenant. Yes, The Revenant. Yes. Revenant. Uh, when, did, when did you want to go see it? I went and saw it uh, Saturday night. Okay, great. Yeah. Great. At the last showing, and it was relatively full. I was sat it? in the... I sat in the regular seats that we sit in, but the theater was still very full for the 930 show. Yeah, that's where I sat. And we went to, uh, I think, like, it was actually like a Wednesday showing of it. And it was really full theater. It was like a seven o'clock showing. It was very full. I was very surprised. Yeah. Uh, So this movie actually came out a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. Some select theaters and is kind of expanding. And it uh, did really well. It's an initial weekend. It actually beat Star Wars in that Friday box office, which actually surprised me a lot. Uh, not because really. I just didn't, I mean, I had Star to, Wars had been out for that's true. You know, several weeks now. So. But I guess I was basing this all off of uh, Birdman. You know, the numbers that oh, Birdman right. did and it really didn't. But have there's that a much. big difference there's a lot between of difference in the movies. But there's a big difference between a movie where people thought it was like a superhero movie and then coming out of it and going, "Oh, this was just boring crap," and yeah. this movie, which is, you know, survival. You know, uh, Birdman was more internal, mm-hmm. internalizing struggle. This one was an actual man against nature. Sure. And that had a much bigger impact on it. It also had the whole revenge story tied in with mm-hmm. it too. So I think that's, and then of course Leo DiCaprio. had Leonardo DiCaprio and, so that, and Tom that Hardy. brings people in right. a little bit, a uh, little bit more. Sure. Uh, so yeah, starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as Hugh Glass and Tom Hardy as, uh, I don't actually remember what his name, Cooper Fitzgerald. or something? Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, general overview of the story. Guys are in this trading expedition. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character Glass is a scout for them. They're out on expedition to collect all of these pelts up in some wild territory. Um, then things go awry. They get attacked. Their crew goes down. And then uh, from that point on, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, after he gets mauled by a bear, is a struggle for his life mm-hmm. as he's left with a few members of his crew. They essentially leave him to die and then uh he is, goes that's a very well, brief overview we can start yeah because the, the the bigger thing that you're missing is yeah. uh, you know his point of the wanting revenge on this and, and mm-hmm. struggling out is he has a son with an indian woman mm-hmm. uh everyone in the indian village was murdered mm-hmm. years before when the when his son was young now the son's a i don't know let's say 18 year old 15 year old something like that and he wants to stay with his dad, help nurse him back to health. They leave two guys with him, mm-hmm. uh, the two guys, Fitzgerald and this other kid, uh, bug out, but not before killing Glass's son. Right. 
which is what sets him off in this revenge thing of I'm going to go and kill these guys. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that leads into that bigger story. Right. Interesting thing, though, as I was doing some research after watching the movie. So this movie, The Revenant, is based on a 2002 book by Michael Punk or Mm -hmm. Punky. But that is based on a true story. And in 1939, um, the Federal Writers Project published The Oregon Trail, The History of an American West, which they mentioned Hugh Glass. So this may be one of the first appearances of Hugh Glass mentioned in historical documents. Uh, Everything else passed uh, down uh, among uh, oral tradition. But um, in 1939, Time Magazine called Hugh Glass the angriest man in the U.S. in U.S. history. <laughs> right? Here's here's the here's the real story okay. as related in in 1939. In 1823, Glass joined a team led by Andrew Henry that traveled up the Missouri River and the Grand River in modern day South Dakota. So this does not take place in Canada, uh, right. like we're we're led to believe in the beginning. Um, before Glass could shoot a retreat, this is where he was attacked by a grizzly bear, quote, before Glass could shoot a retreat, the animal had seized him, had bitten out a large chunk of his flesh, which she dropped to her younglings. Glass screamed for his fellows, but before they could kill the bear, he had been mangled from head to foot. So um, in the movie, we see Glass shoot the bear mm-hmm. and then stab it to death and essentially take the bear down himself. Right. In I guess in the real life, he had shot the bear. It wasn't enough to bring him down. The bear was mauling him. The other members of his party came along, mm-hmm. fired like five or six <laughs> muzzle shots into the bear before it wow. uh, collapsed. Mm-hmm. And one of the counts that I read was that, um, let's see if it says in here, you know, uh, one of the accounts that I had read said that it had ripped the skin off of his face down to the bone. So you could like see his Great. skull underneath yeah. there, right? right? So he was pretty messed up. And in yeah. the movie, it is it's pretty brutal when you see him oh, afterwards yes. and oh, what's yeah. happening. I mean, he's got his back is ripped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the big places where an infection set in in the in the real story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had broken his leg; his face was badly scarred. Mm-hmm. In the in the movie, he had his throat, throat was slashed, ripped open. Yeah. yeah, and he had to later seal it back up with a gunpowder burn. Yeah, that was rough. <laughs> Uh, Glass did not die, but his fellow, fellow travelers did not expect him to survive for long. They could not carry the injured man with them. And since winter was approaching, they could not risk staying with him until he died. The men in the group offered two of their own $80, uh, to stay with Glass and give him a decent burial once he died. But Glass would not let go of life. And after five days, the two men abandoned Glass, scared that they would perish themselves if they stayed any longer. Quote, slipping away, they took with them all of his belongings, his gun, his knife, his flint, and other essentials of wilderness life. There, uh, these they gave to Henry and asserted that that Glass had died. This was their Mm, proof that he had died. This is where the story gets really interesting. Glass was in such a rage at being being abandoned that he dragged himself to the nearest post, Fort Kiowa, 100 miles away. He was so close to starving until he came upon a a a group of wolves killing a buffalo calf, which we saw in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, he scared the animals off, ate the raw meat and, uh, of the killed animal. He joined a a trapping party on its way to Yellowstone. Uh, but there they were attacked by a group of native Americans, uh, like we saw in the, in the movie. It's Mm -hmm. the uh, same group, the, um, Akira, uh, the, the Arikara, uh the Cree, uh, none but glass who was saved by another tribe, another tribe Mm -hmm. saved him and he survived. Then he set off alone to the bighorn post where he believed where he was going to exact his revenge (laughs) Took him another 38 days to get there. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah. But by the time he got there, 
the guys that kind of, I guess, had heard that they were after him, so they split out. Glass joined up with another group of Native Americans. <laughs> they were killed. And this is um, um, the chiefs. The chief had been killed by the trappers by trappers a year before and glass and his fellow trappers had been set up. Mm. So this was kind of a revenge plot. Glass found himself alone again after all these people (laughs) got killed. Apparently when he got back to Fort Kiowa later that spring, people knew that had heard his story Mm -hmm. and were kind of expecting him. When he got there, he met up with the guys that had deserted him and nothing, nothing happened. Really? The entire trip had just exhausted him so much over the nine months that he was mm-hmm. doing this that he was just like, you know what? There's no point in doing this. Interesting. There, and, and they don't explain why he just decided not to do it. Mm-hmm. He got his gun back, which is really all he wanted. And right. then he just went on his way and then was later, I guess, like a couple of years later died mm. uh, of some other other cause. But wow. it was interesting that nothing happened. at the Very end interesting. Yeah, which I, I, I find that interesting that here you can take a story that – is inspired by true events, mm-hmm. right? You can take the story that I just kind of uh, retold and you can tweak it enough to where you have to add in why is this man struggling? Just because he's mad at these guys left him behind? No, yeah. let's add in the child. Well, let's mm-hmm. add in the backstory of this and his whole family and wanting to be reunited with his dead family mm-hmm. and um, then give him, throw everything in his face that will prevent him from getting back to the fort mm-hmm. and seeking his revenge. And that's what makes the story very interesting. Well, I find it very interesting that in the actual story that he had really no revenge at the end. Right. Because that is this kind of narrative that floats in mm-hmm. there when he when he stumbles upon uh, a native and he has this conversation with them like revenge is in God's hands right. or something of that, along that right. lines. And that's what comes in his mind when he's actually doing the bat- last battle with Fitzgerald mm-hmm. and he floats him down the river. Yeah. And let's the and then, <laughs> Yeah. The, the, uh, I wrote it down. Uh, uh, Ari, Ari Yeah. Let them the keep, take care of him. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that was kind of a, more of a thank you for mm-hmm. glass saving the chief's daughter that they, that's right. the reason why the, um, native Americans were chasing him and everyone else in this mm-hmm. movie and killing them is because someone had kidnapped his daughter was raping her. He glass stumbled upon the camp of these guys at some point in the movie, mm-hmm. did the right thing, freed the, the, the girl and let everyone else go. Right. Um, but yeah, it's this idea of is revenge really something that, that you need to do or not need to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, it seems like he'd kind of burn it itself out of him by the end of the movie. And he's just like, okay, let's just see what happens if, you know, put it yeah. in God's hands and let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Interesting, the title of this movie, Zach, is The Revenant. Do you know right. what a Revenant is? Oh, well, I do because it was on the poster. Oh, was it? <laughs> it was okay. on the very first poster they released. It was, oh, was it uh, One Who Has Returned As If From The Dead or something yeah, like that? One That Returns After Death or A Long Absence. Yeah. So it's interesting because if you're looking at this, there are essentially three points or four points in this movie where Glass dies and is reborn. Mm-hmm. The first death is after the bear attacks him and they leave him for dead in the shallow grave. He wakes up and crawls over to his dead son. He's pretty much resigned to just die there with his son, Mm -hmm. but something urges him forward. Right. right? So that would be like the first death and resurrection Mm -hmm. when he finally gets out of that first spot. Second time is when he comes across the other Native American who is looking for more of his people after Mm -hmm. his family has been killed. And 
glass is burning up from infection and the native American builds a little, um, steam hut with some medicinal herbs and stuff in there Mm -hmm. and packs him in there for a couple of days and hopes that the, the heat and the steam and everything heals him. So he passes out when he emerges from that, that's his second Mm -hmm. return or rebirth. Sure. You know where his third one would be? I'm going to guess his third one would be from the, the horse he yeah, cut yeah, open the horse that he took all the guts out yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that weird? I mean, they've got this in there that he metaphorically dies mm. multiple times in this movie or is it near death? Mm. And each time the director brings him back mm-hmm. to continue on to his journey. Yeah, it's a very nice cinematic thing, especially tying into the whole film because I think there's also this... And the final one, I feel like at the end when he floats Fitzgerald down and he's kind of resigned to, I mean, there's the tree element that keeps recurring mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. vision he's having of his wife and this kind of rebirth of letting it go and just right, kind of right. carrying on. But I definitely think the those three are very, I mean, one, he literally comes out of a grave. Yeah. One, he's pretty much in like a form, and they're all kind of forms of graves right, that right. he emerges out of mm-hmm. after surviving. But do you know that each time he seems to have a different reason for, for continuing. You know, the first mm-hmm. is I got to get moving cause I'm going to go kill those guys who killed my son. Mm-hmm. So it's really deep in his gut. I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. The second time he's reborn and finds later that the native American that saved him is, is killed. He comes out as being more, um, I don't want to say neutral, but it seems like he is more accepting that it's okay to accept the help from others. Mm-hmm. Then the third time, um, he and the horse go off a cliff. The, the horse just lands on the ground. He goes mm-hmm. through a tree, uh, that breaks his fall, but the horse is just dead. Oh, very dead. But when he reemerges from that horse, he is, there's a moment where he respects the horse mm-hmm. and, and is essentially, even though we don't hear anything being said, you can tell he's thanking the horse for the sacrifice that the horse made. Mm-hmm. So he's going through this next kind of rebirth or re-understanding of himself of, you know, sometimes other things have to die for other things to live. Mm-hmm. Maybe then he's starting to tie that back with his son. Mm-hmm. Maybe his son had to die so that he could live mm-hmm. or he had to kill the soldiers, which is one of the things that pops up a couple of times in the st- story where mm-hmm. he kills these uh, French soldiers that had killed his, his family. He had to kill that soldier so his son could live. Mm-hmm. So it's very, I mean, there's this kind of obviously a big push between life and death and making coming to grips with that mm-hmm. uh, multiple times. But um, I'm surprised that this was not, didn't take more of a religious bent or a spiritual bent yeah. than it did, which is interesting. I think there's definitely elements in there. We, I alluded to these flashback or fl- uh, visions he's essentially having of uh, his wife and his child and this in the tree. Uh, so, you know, there's these visual elements they're throwing in and you're right, it is kind of just lightly in there, this spiritual type of thing. And mm-hmm. especially, I think, uh, when you look at the rebirth coming out of the horse, where he's thinking the horse, and it's like this thinks of nature, of this cosmic balance of life and death he's mm-hmm. acknowledging. And it's, I mean, you almost got to look at it like the first rebirth is of himself. Right. And then of kind of community, essentially, mm-hmm. kind of the people around you and then the third one is this giant force of nature that he's becoming mm-hmm. aware of mm-hmm. or giving thanks to yeah yeah cool what'd you think of the acting uh the acting is very interesting this film because um like the martian we talked about dicaprio is by himself mm-hmm. most of the film mm-hmm. um but i felt like his what he did 
in the beginning of the film with actors, I thought was great and mm-hmm. kind of uh, sparse to a point because he doesn't really talk much. He's still kind of right. not really part of the crew. He's just kind of hired on yeah, as to guide, to guide him. Guide so him, he's not yeah. really one of them. Mm-hmm. So I think he does that well. But then, like, getting mauled by the bear, like, that scene was just insane. Or just watching him, like, struggle. You can yeah, just yeah. see the strain in his face mm-hmm. when they're trying to stitch him up or mm-hmm. he's got, like, dirt all up in his mm-hmm. mouth and he's trying to do something when he's killing his son uh, when Fitzgerald is killing his son. Um, yeah, I thought, and then just the whole journey of him going through, yeah. I just thought was amazing for how little he talked, yeah, how I much mean, he could emote. Once, he, once he's mauled, I mean, he's, he's struggling to talk because mm-hmm. his throat is all ripped up. Right. And so it is really interesting to see him work through that. I thought mm-hmm. it was really good. Especially, I mean, the physical elements, I'm sure he had a lot of stunt people, but there's still... Some stuff he's gonna have to do. He's gonna have to. Well, besides just like freezing the entire time. Yeah. Um. Um. I thought Tom Hardy's performance was exceptional. Oh yeah. In the film. Yeah. I it's, think it's one of the probably better roles Hardy's ever done. Where. I I, I really feel like Hardy is a really great actor. Where he kind of goes into a role, and you don't really see much carryover between right, performances right. and yeah. Hardy's and Hardy's acting. And this one, I really felt is just completely different than what he's done and just is that character completely it was mm-hmm. just i felt like it was just phenomenal yeah. and he got to talk more which kind of helped right and it was interesting yeah just to hear his justifications and his mm-hmm. reasonings for doing things yeah i thought that character was really interesting because on some level you're talking about survival in this brutal mm-hmm. brutal wilderness you can understand like hey this guy's he's yeah, dead yeah. let's yeah. leave him we, right. there's no reason for all of us to die mm-hmm. uh if he is just going to, I mean, he's, we're just going to sit here and he's going to die and then we're all going to die. What's the point? Right. You, know, you can, especially in that time period where they are, mm-hmm. how the conditions are, you can definitely kind of have sympathy for them. In, yeah. It makes it very intense and scary that if we don't get somewhere where there's shelter, we will die here mm-hmm. either from the elements or from native Americans mm-hmm. or animals or whatever that can Absolutely. kill us. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought his performance was great and I was glad to see he got nominated for a supporting actor for Academy. So they shot this up in Canada. They did. Uh, and they also ended up shooting it in Argentina <laughs> because they were chasing snow, mm-hmm. which I found very interesting because um, there was a story in Hollywood Reporter sometime back, right, Zach? Mm-hmm. It was like in July. Yeah. Because that's how long this production lasted. It was, it's been going for a long time. But what, yeah. was go- what, was, what, was, what was the big story about? So the big story was that, you know, they are shooting up, you know, in the wilderness in times where, uh, you know, the weather is changing, it's brutal, it's mm-hmm. cold. They said sometimes it could be like higher. Degrees. Sometimes it was negative 20 with, yeah. neg- with negative 40 wind chill. Mm-hmm. And they would be shooting technically a fall scene. So in your he would ask the actors not to wear hats and gloves because technically in the sequence of the film, they wouldn't be really there yet right, right. Uh, in that. And so they had these harsh conditions where they're going into wilderness. Um, you know, You know, they're not really taking much. They're not taking... Well, they generators because they they're not taking a lot lights. of anything. Well, here, yeah, right. here's the thing. I mean, it's it's fascinating in that uh, the director, um, what is his name? Um, Alejandro and Alejandro. Yeah, yeah. He they shot this because they needed to follow the seasons. Right. They shot it in sequence. Oh yeah. They shot yeah, it yeah. from, and this is not something that normally happens in a movie. You no. shoot everything that needs to happen here. You need it here and here and here. And so he's like, okay, well, we're going to go up here. All the stuff that happens at the beginning of the movie, we're just shooting this in order. Page one, mm-hmm. page two, page three, all the way through. 
and then you hit the brutal snows. And again, you're right. They don't have generators because places where they were at, they were not allowed to bring in heavy generators. They Mm -hmm. were not allowed to bring in um, off-road vehicles. They were not allowed to bring in giant cranes. They couldn't put in tracks or anything like that. Right. So they were like not, and you couldn't fly in helicopters to do stuff. So you were literally, uh, I forget how they said they were doing it as some kind of a a trestle system that they had to build between trees to get cranes up Mm -hmm. uh, to the, to the top of the areas that they were shooting. So they were in a very wilderness area, sub-zero temperatures. And I can understand why people are grumping and grousing about we are in these horrible mm-hmm. working conditions right or, uh, uncomfortable working conditions yeah some they in the hollywood reporter piece in july which they ran in july and they said mm-hmm. it was un, uh unusual for inyarachi to give a interview at this point because they right. think they were still in production because they took a very long break because as you mm-hmm. mentioned they ran out of snow in yeah. canada so they had to go all the way to the southern tip of argentina to find snow so they actually finished the film uh, so they take a break for this, and this is when it got out. You started seeing reports like there was like a living hell shooting mm-hmm. this film, and so he gave an interview to kind of, you know, let everyone know what was happening, and and because they said there was a lot of people that would quit, mm-hmm. people got fired. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hollywood Reporter piece says a lot of it was part of a miscommunication between one of his producers sure. and the director, and so that was causing a lot of issues. But here's the thing, yeah, Alejandro wanted to do this because if we did this in green screen. Mm-hmm. If we did this in blue screen and fake snow and all this stuff and you were at the end of your your shot, you were drinking coffee and going right. back to your trailer or everything, he didn't feel that you would get the performance right. out of mm-hmm. the talent or the crew to really make it feel like I am in a miserable spot. I mm-hmm. am I am crawling through snow, dragging myself through these bitter conditions mm-hmm. if they had done it on a soundstage. Right. Which now that you look at the finished piece you can see the pain in everyone's eyes in the fact that we are out here and this is horrible. Mm -hmm. You can see that. And I think even though, I don't know, some people may question the motive, it really paid off. I think it really worked to do it both, both shooting in, you know, shooting order in, in script Mm -hmm. order and doing it in those, those conditions, I think led to a better performance in the storytelling. Yeah. Especially because, you know, we look at, uh, glass, his character arc where, you know, kind of in this story, essentially he's like, he's tired. He doesn't want to right, do this. Right. Well, Leonardo was probably very tired oh, at the I'm end sure. of this shoot, yeah. even with those breaks. I mean, they had to do physically grueling things mm-hmm. and kind of put their bodies through it. And Alejandro said, everyone knew what they were getting into. Right. That, like, this is what it was going to be. Right. Like, he wasn't, it wasn't lying. It's like, oh, we're going to be mm-hmm. in sound stages in Canada. Just kidding. We're going to be in like four feet of snow in Canada. Uh, so everyone, people knew what it was. And obviously this is not something you would normally find on a Hollywood set because obviously it's got all this, yeah. you know, talk about how right. incredibly grueling it was for people. And um, some people, I think, will laud him for doing this. Be like, yeah. well, you are this is a the reason you do this is because you got this performance and you look at the film mm-hmm. finest production and it mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But obviously there are drawbacks doing it where people are like, eh, this is kind of brutal, man. I think at the end though, when we see Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio winning a golden globe, mm-hmm. there's a reason why, right? Oh, he's right. He's really putting this in. When you see Tom yeah. Hardy being nominated, there's a reason why mm-hmm. he's being nominated here. The next interesting thing is, because they're out in the middle of nowhere. And this is the mm-hmm. thing that I noticed when it was shooting. I was like, there's no freaking way there are lights in this mm-hmm. scene. This is a minimum crew. 
This is live locations. Yeah. No way that they're doing using anything but natural light. And mm-hmm. sure enough, all they had were bounce cards, cutters, which are basically uh, ways to block light, mm-hmm. negative fill, which is black, black, uh, like black reflector, just imagine yeah. a reflector black. Yeah. And that's all they used to light this. Yeah. They had some light bulbs, I guess, some like household light bulbs. Oh, okay. Uh, that they would uh, put a bunch of them in a couple of scenes like in the, around the campfire. If the winds was were blowing, it was causing too much flicker, so they would um, um, supplement it mm-hmm. with some like regular sure. household bulbs bundled together to ca- cast off the light from that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was the natural conditions of that environment. And they only had a little bit of time each day to shoot. Right. Because during the wintertime, it was like 9.30 in the morning until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's all the time that you could get mm-hmm. anything decent. Right. And... Originally, they wanted to shoot this on film. Mm-hmm, they did. Which I found was very fascinating. Yeah, which is something I thought of while I was watching it because there are some campfire scenes where is very, obviously we're not using any mm-hmm. light or very minimal. We're using mm-hmm. all natural stuff from a fire. Um, and it was crisp, so good uh, quality. Like, the, like yeah, except I thought that it was didn't... like there was, a, there was a moment I was like, this could have been filmed because of the range right. they're getting and just the, just the vividness right. of it. But then you get into those low light. I'm like, oh, no, this is yeah, yeah. beautifully shot digital yeah, low it is. light and that stuff. Was, you know, when compare that to Hateful Eight, which is 70 millimeter film, we're doing mm-hmm. all these things. And then you get into the cabin and it is all set up stage lighting mm-hmm. compared to doing this natural lighting out, out in the field. And they can't get it with film. Uh, they were having too many yeah. problems with the film. They did. I think they shot about, they said 13 or 20 minutes of stuff, but mm-hmm. there were too many problems. And none of it made it into processed. the Processed. It, yeah. it was, you know, had all sorts of problems. So they ended up not using it at all. And they went with the Aria Alexa's mm-hmm. uh, digital cameras to shoot everything. They had two cameras and about a dozen lenses mm-hmm. uh, ranging from 14 millimeters, which is a wide shot mm-hmm. to like I think 26, 26, yeah, 26, was their closest on one, the which 65. is still... Uh, in 35 millimeter film, 50 millimeters is considered normal, kind of like what mm-hmm. our eye sees. And so essentially this movie was shot wide so that you could not only see the bleakness of mm-hmm. the environment, but you could see where the character fit in with that environment. Right. The other thing that I found interesting was, and this again was something we saw in Birdman and probably what was the other film that the director of photography, didn't you say something about the- uh, uh, Lubetsky did Gravity as well. Uh, but was the the tree? Oh, of, tree of life as well. Is that the one that we were looking at? Yeah. Uh, yep. That nobody liked. The, that yes, the <laughs> film that I like, and a lot of other Matthew people, but it, most but people don't. Yeah. So tree of yeah. life, and that was the director of photography. He was the director of photography. On right. That. Okay, yeah. So same same director of photography. Mm-hmm. Um. The other thing that they did is they, especially with these lenses, is they got in super super close. Yes. I mean, you see DiCaprio sitting there breathing. You see the breath coming out of his mouth, and it's probably his real breath coming out. Oh, yeah, probably. But, I mean, the camera's just pushing in and pushing in and pushing in and pushing in. And there were times, uh, I was reading an article in American Cinematographer where they were like, the lens was literally touching his cheek in order to get the shot that we needed (laughs) and still be able to see all of the background uh, out there. Um, Just fabulous, especially in the one scene where... Uh, the avalanche is taking place Mm. where they're right up on his face after the death of the um, uh, leader of the expedition. Mm -hmm. And then there's an avalanche that goes off behind him and you're able to get that all in focus Mm. throughout that entire time. Yeah. With this big wide lens. (laughs) It was great seeing uh, some behind the scene images in that American cinematographer Mm -hmm. article because, you know, you're talking about these really wide images, but there's a lot of tight shots in this. Oh, yeah. And you can see 
uh, Lubetsky has one of his cameras and it's a tight shot of DiCaprio and his wife mm-hmm. and it, the camera is just smashed right up, up against him. Yeah. Like, oh, that'd be, I mean, that's amazing. Which, you know, that's the nice thing about this. And I've said this before, like when I, when I've taught class before is that if you're going to go without a tripod and mm-hmm. here they're doing a lot of crane work or they're doing a lot of steady cam work cams, in this yep. piece. If you want a steady shot, make it as wide as you possibly can make it and get close to your subject. And that will make your shot a lot less shaky than standing five feet away or three feet away from somebody and zooming mm-hmm. in because that's just going to amplify all of your movement. So I think that was kind of a smart move. Yeah. And so, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, so the other thing is because the camera is always moving in this, it allowed them to do some incredibly long shots and mm-hmm. not, not as, not to the extent of Birdman where it's supposedly no. all one, one continuous take, take yeah. which yeah, obviously, obviously it isn't, <laughs> but, um, there were, scenes in this movie that I had to stop as, as it was going, going, is this still the same shot? And Mm -hmm. sure enough, it is the same shot. Like the attack on the camp at the very beginning of the movie, right? all one shot, that entire sequence is all one shot. Could you, did you see some of the digital edits in there? No, I wasn't. I was just like, wow, this is really good. And I think they're doing this all in one shot and I don't know where any edits or anything are going on. There's a couple and they talk about in that piece where they go from steady cam to crane Mm -hmm. and stuff. So, you Mm -hmm. know, there's edits in there. And I think if you go back and watch that opening sequence again and know they're going for a one shot, yeah. you can kind of see like two digital edits mm-hmm. and kind of, or when he's like going into the water oh, and right, kind of right, out right. of it and, and stuff. Out, yeah. uh, and so, and I only knew that because I know Birdman and how that movie fascinated me. Right, so right. I was looking for this. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, I think the bear attack scene is pretty much just one shot. The fight at the end mm-hmm. uh, between Glass and Fitzgerald is one shot. Right. Through the whole thing, there are oh, so many long Oh, and when uh, the leader of the expedition goes back to uh, the camp, look, I mean, a lot of these are really, really long takes. Like when he's <laughs> running through the camp and he's like, where's Fitzgerald? Mm-hmm. He's got the gun in there. That's all one mm-hmm. big long take as he's winding through that camp, the fort. Right. And that's, I mean, they had to build that fort. Oh, yeah. And they built amazing. the fort. The cool thing was because they knew what their environment was going to be. They built the fort so that every window faced south to where they could get maximum light exposure. Nice. And in, and if you look like where scenes where they're interviewing people, they're either right by a window or right by a big open door. Mm-hmm. And in some scenes where you actually had to pass through like like that one, they would actually have cut out sections of the set that would allow more light into oh, that nice. area. So, yeah, it was just incredible to to see these long shots being used. And being used effectively. Right. But, and here's the other thing that's amazing and why I think that the director of photography is going to get something. Although, you know, some people could argue, oh, yeah, director of photography, he didn't really use anything because he didn't have any lights. He just used natural light. So, blah, blah, blah. but I guess <laughs> that, in my opinion, is awesome that yeah. he was able to use natural light, but it caused all sorts of problems because not only is he pulling focus live, and we're talking focus from like mm-hmm. three inches to... 50 feet yeah. that you're constantly having to do that. He's also having to uh, 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 constantly Point. adjust e- exposure and yeah. iris because they're going into these very dark areas and these very light areas and he's got to balance that out quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were talking to Oscars well, last week or a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I think I'm changing my mind. I think that this movie could. think he's going to get it? As much as Hollywood loves to pat itself on the back, Tom Hardy's character was awesome. Mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, acting was awesome. The cinematography in this movie is awesome. And the directing is really, really good. I think so too. So, and then the movie overall is just very engaging. Mm-hmm. So if there's five awards right there that I think that, that it could easily win. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, speaking of the Oscars, uh, 
Emmanuel Lubezki, the director of photography, won the last two years for Gravity and then Birdman. Right. Uh, if he wins this year, he will be the only person ever to win three in a row. I th- Currently, I... there are four people who have won two consecutive. Mm-hmm. That's the most. But mm-hmm. he will, if he wins, he'll be the first three. And, and when we look at what are the other movies up for uh, best cinematography? Cinematography, I believe, is uh, Mad Max. Okay, so again, nothing against Mad Max. Good movie, but if you think about all the lighting, the extra setups and things that they can do in that compared mm-hmm. to someone who's just, I'm working with the sun and some candles, people. Look what I'm able to deliver. I know. Here's the winner. What's yeah. another one that we have up there? Uh, I'm trying to pull it up really okay. quick. Uh, but, but, uh, I think I'm trying to just remember what I watched this year. Um, oh, of course I didn't put those down in my no, no, I've got projection sheet. I've got them here. Okay. Uh, la, 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 actress, actress, uh, cinematography, Carol, which, which I haven't seen. Eh, oh, we talked about that. Yeah, we talked about Hateful Eight, which again, right. really good, but I mean, it's, it's set up lighting and it looks like you're watching a stage play. Mm-hmm. Mad Max, The Revenant and, um, Sicario. Oh, Sicario, yeah. Sicario, which I haven't watched. It's on, it's available right now on mm-hmm. iTunes. I was almost going to watch it, but then the youngest was like, well, that doesn't look like a very good movie. And it's like, yeah, it's probably not for you. So, <laughs> uh, but if you compare all of that, working just with your natural light mm-hmm. and nothing else and just minimal supplement, uh, supplemental light, my God, that's, that's amazing for this movie. Yeah. And I, you know, I think obviously when people paint with light, there's a lot of beautiful things they can right, do, right. but if we're talking about cinematography complementing a film, yes. I think the natural aesthetic of this film mm-hmm. is the perfect complement to the story. But see, here's the thing. They didn't, I mean, you know, you can just pull out your camera and start shooting in your house and go, oh, look, natural light. Yeah, but sure. no, think about it. If you shoot, if I were to go upstairs and shoot in the morning, mm-hmm. the natural light in one room is not going to be that fantastic. But mm-hmm. I wait a few hours until 10 or 11 o'clock. 12 o'clock when the sun's coming in and it's mm-hmm. illuminating and bouncing off walls and creating some nice light and reflections throughout the room, then that's a pretty room. Mm-hmm. And then if I wait until towards the evening when the sun's setting, I got long shadows in the room and I've got some golden areas of the room and more light bouncing off. That's something else all completely as well. And that can be used to great effect, but I could also just go in and throw up a bunch of lights and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Being able to just bounce that light around and do that and just work. I, I have a great respect for people who can Absolutely. just use natural light and not make it look like crap. Mm-hmm. And I do not think that any point in this, there's okay. There's two points in this movie where I was a little disappointed in lighting, but they were both inside at night with a <laughs> fireplace yeah. and that's it. Otherwise it's like, this is some beautiful lighting. Mm-hmm. I'm betting all he's doing is using the natural light of the sun and boom, there you go. Yeah. And so then, that should give you an idea. You talk about these shadows and uh, light is when it's good and when it's not as great. I mean, that should give, you know, you guys listening an idea of why this production got stretched yeah. so far because they're not being able to pull in these mm-hmm. huge K lights so mm-hmm. they can get all this nice light that they need any time of the day that they want it. They have to wait for that right. perfect moment to actually shoot the scene. Uh, you know, in the elements, uh, getting to some real, you know, film nerdery, yeah. they talked about in the, American cinematographer piece about how it was so cold that it was throwing yeah. off the back focus of these lens. So right. they had to work with Panavision mm-hmm. and Alexia to fine tune these lenses mm-hmm. so they could give them a degree of like error when it got so cold. Yeah, so it's so like it, if, if it, it gets this cold, up. you need to use this. Right. Lens. If, it gets, <laughs> if it's between this temperature and this temperature, use this lens. If it's between mm-hmm. this temperature and this temperature, use this set of lenses. And if you're, if it's this temperature or below, use this set of lenses. Right. Which is just absurd that you have to, 
you know, you're <laughs> you're going into fine tune so in uh just make it perfect and right, so right. you have the all the technical little tweaks that mm-hmm. these people do to their cameras to just make their oh, yeah, films perfect just to is get amazing. the best thing and I, again i think that's really important uh in a discussion for anybody who's listening and wants to work on something is it's not just turn the camera on and go mm-hmm. and unfortunately a lot of people when they have their handy cams or whatever that they buy they just turn it on and they go they don't think about focus they don't worry about framing shots or anything like that it's just like turn it on and let's shoot and then later they're like, well, that doesn't look very good. Mm-hmm. Well, if you go into your camera settings and even a $200 camera that I can get it at uh, Walmart, mm-hmm. I can go in and I can adjust the iris, the exposure, the white balance. I can go in and ex- uh, uh, adjust frame rates and all that stuff and get something that looks really good on a mm-hmm. cheap camera. But it takes time to, to right. an it understanding does. of your equipment to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You know, I would throw this into the Western genre of the time. Would oh, you? sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. where do you think it kind of lands? At, at, at story-wise, let's go from there. Story-wise, where do you think it kind of lands in the Western genre? Do you think it kind of followed uh, a standard type of Western story? Or do you think it's been it's kind of playing with it like we've seen these Western genres do really in the last year? Um, it's hard to say where it kind of lands mm-hmm. because too often when we think of Western, I mean, maybe it's not, it's maybe close to unforgiven ter- territory, mm-hmm. but not quite. I mean, it's really man against the elements mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So it would probably fall on the, as far as action goes. And there's surprisingly amount of action in here. Yeah. I would say it's on the low to mid range of action as far as Westerns go mm-hmm. with shoot 'em sure. up, bang, bang type stuff. Yeah. Uh, whereas something like, um, shoot out the okay corral or, or Wyatt Earp or one of those movies might be on the high end of mm-hmm. this range because it's, um, it's man against man and guns are blazing and all of that stuff and fast actions and that that's not this, this is a quieter film, mm-hmm. but it's still very, very engaging. Mm-hmm. And do you think, uh, Lubetsky did some typical Western type of shots? We have some vistas and oh, things sure. like and that's that. why they wanted to use the wide. That's yeah. why they wanted to use the wide angle because they wanted to show the environment and, and kind of capture this mm-hmm. uh, wide Western feel. Um, and so that's why when I mentioned the avalanche scene, that's one right. where you're capturing the beauty of the nature around you or just when they're walking through the woods or along the riverbanks or just these kind of reestablishing shots of where we're at in the wilderness works really, really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. That, that, uh, Avalanche scene. Now you just it reminds me of uh, that French film that came out like a year and a half oh, ago. Yeah, that yeah, Force Majeure mm-hmm. with the Avalanche. That mm-hmm. reminds me of that now. Interesting uh, thing about that. That first when I read it, I was like, or first when I saw the movie and saw the Avalanche coming, I was like, okay, not another chase moment right now. Mm-hmm. And then you saw, oh well, it's no way is it going to come to them. And then part of me was thinking, I wonder if that was a natural avalanche that happened, and everybody just stayed. <laughs> in character and composure. And it was just one of these happy accident things. First of all, not digital. It was a real avalanche, mm. but they worked with, um, the park services or the mountain rangers or whoever they are Set one off for a controlled detonation at the exact precise time <laughs> that it needed to happen. So here you have the director of photography and the director communicating with one another back and forth so that when Leonardo DiCaprio has this one moment in his eye that they can trigger that, that avalanche at that precise wow. moment so that it starts happening at then. So there was a, so much coordination going on just for that wow. one shot. That's fascinating. Amazing. Uh, how, you know, I found another thing that I found very interesting What's about that? this. Uh, this comes from Yahoo tech. Okay. 
so they started to, they wanted to try some science on this thing. So this group called Lightwave, uh, it's a uh, Fox Studios partnered with a small bioanalytics software company called Lightwave to measure the audience reacting to the film. So they basically Ooh, put on one of these Fitbits that you use kind of at the hospital grade to measure mm-hmm. everything about your pulse, your heart rate, all of this stuff wow. that's going on. And here's what they found. Um, there were 15 moments of fight or f- flight in the movie where the audience really literally had a reaction of I need to, you know, a, f- a scared reaction to mm-hmm. it. 14 heart pounding moments. And then the most amazing thing. 4,716 seconds or uh, 76 minutes of the movie where people were absolutely still in the theater. Not wiggling around in their seat, not Mm -hmm. yawning, just 76 minutes of just being transfixed into the story on the scene. And and that uh, is amazing to me, but then when I think back on our theater experience, uh, I remember just the the theater just being just dead. Yeah, quiet the entire time. Yeah. 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 And then even, I don't know about you, but when... Those credits started rolling. The last scene when Leader DiCaprio looks like straight into right, the, right lens the lens and then runs. Mm-hmm. No one was like moving. No, no uh-uh. one was talking. It no. was like silence. And, and I was just really surprised trying to get back from it. As the credits started rolling, people still were sitting in their seats, mm-hmm. which never happens. Usually, never happens yeah. unless they know there's a post-credit sequence, which this one does not have. No, and the audience knew it. But they still stayed in there, and probably until midway through the credits, when I was like, "Okay, I'm going to get up and go now." Mm-hmm. But um most of the audience was still there halfway through the credits. Yeah. Which is, which is just, I think a testament to what they pulled off for the film. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's just a, you just have this visceral reaction through it or you, I mean, like as the, uh, the biometric show, which is just phenomenal that they would kind of do that. I know, right. Uh, just this show. I mean, I've seen people when they do the eye scans mm-hmm. to look at images and stuff, but now you but just strap it on your that, wrist. Yeah. yeah that's, that's really, really cool. a great idea to do that. Yeah. So, what else do you want to talk about on this? What um, else did, what else did I want to talk about? I think I had something else. Um, I mean, what do you, where do you think it in lands? A lot of my friends, I've been having a discussion of uh, this against hateful eight. I think no, it's a, it, no it's a weird, no comparison. They don't mean it they're both mean, Westerns. Yeah. They're both uh, big epic storytelling, but one is essentially mm-hmm. a comedy. And the other sure. one is a hard drama. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's not really a comparison you can really? make except that they both take place in the winter and they both take place <laughs> in the West. <laughs> Maybe that's why everyone's like, we were just trying to draw, or I haven't, still haven't seen Hateful Eight because it didn't come to our theater. Right. But I know some of my friends have. And so we were just talking back and forth about both films. Yeah, and- no, it's, uh, yeah, Hateful Eight is like movie violence. Mm-hmm. Revenant is like, real violence did right? you ever did you ever like have like a reaction to when he's eating meat or stuff because i no, watched this with aubrey no. and some parts she was like Ugh, i, I, I did it. not um not in the revenant but if you watch the hateful eight there are moments where uh somebody gets their he- well a couple of times where people get their heads blown off and they yeah, shatter like right. watermelons sure and that is where you can hear in the theater people are like oh you know like uh-huh. gross getting sick but in this one you see the scenes where he's eating the raw meat or the raw liver and throwing it back up, and nobody in the audience had a reaction to that, mm. which mm. I found interesting. Um, you know, this movie, for as well as I've uh, responded to it, and everyone I've talked to responded to it, it has a lower Rotten Tomato uh, it really? rating. It has, you know, it's got like I think mid to, to l- mid to low eighties. I think it's in the, I mean, it's in the mm. mid eighties. I can which, see it's not. It's yeah, not. So super what do you think? It, what do you think is pulling no, that down? No love interest. Okay. 
uh, except for the love of your dead wife. Sure. Um, that's not nonstop action. Mm-hmm. When you look at Mad Max, that's a nonstop action movie, which you could also throw into the Western category. It's not, sure. it's not horses, it's motorcycles and cars, mm-hmm. but it's the same kind of an idea of a lawless territory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Mad Max has got nothing but action nonstop. This one's got Leonardo DiCaprio and I, I, you know, I think there's a group of people who are tired of Leo and his Leoness mm-hmm. and ha- the fact that he can do no wrong. So I think that probably <laughs> impacts it a little bit. Sure. So people are probably a little bit more critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ending of the film may turn off some people because it's like, well, I don't get why did he just let the guy go and let the Indians kill him mm-hmm. as opposed to just taking care of it himself. And what does that last shot mean? So it could be a unsatisfying ending of, well, did he live or not live? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's going on kind of thing. So I can see those would be some reasons why some people bring it down. Do you have some ideas or reasons? Uh, you know, I've read some people who were critical of the runtime, which is about 156 minutes. Uh, you had said you didn't feel like it was that long. And you know what? I, really I did didn't. not feel like it was that long either. No, I really didn't. And he says, you know, really long movies, I will be hesitant to go back to the theater and watch them again because it's just an investment. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, I've seen it. I'll wait till it comes out again. Uh, this is one of those films where... It just goes by so fast, or you're just so into the film that the time just kind of slips mm-hmm. by. You don't even recognize mm-hmm. it, and that's how I felt with this one is. So, I mean, I guess if you're somehow something popped you out of being in the film, you could probably be aware of how long the film was because it is mm-hmm. it's like two and a half hours. It's not like it's a little quick jaunt, ninety minutes. It's almost, right, it's almost it, is a, it is a long movie, and that can uh, turn a lot of people off. Yeah, that can turn people off, and uh. You're right. I think it is. I don't think I, w- I don't think I would say it's slow, but I want to say that it's a quiet film, like you mm-hmm. said earlier, where it moves along, but it is very sparse. There's not a lot of dialogue. Sometimes there's very little music. It just kind of plays out with some grunting and river yeah. tricklings. Yeah. Um, which I just there's not a lot of dialogue. No, yeah, like I mean, said, I just yeah. freaking loved. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I was really looking forward to this film. But I think all of my expectations were blown away, and I think this is the best film of the year. I think it is. I mean, if you look and see what it's already won, um, it has, what do we got here? Oops, let me back up here. There's a really cool, if, if people are into film, maybe you already know this, but I would really recommend getting the American Cinematographer app on mm-hmm. your iPad to read the issues there because maybe your local bookstore doesn't carry the magazine or anything like that. Um, but it's got some really cool advanced features in in it that make the story more interesting because of mm. what they can include. So 12 Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, winner of three Golden Globes, two winners in the Critics' Choice Award, Screen Actors Guild Award nominee for Outstanding Performance by a Male Actor in a Leading Role, seven BAFTA nominations for Best Film, Actor, Director, Cinematography, Editing, Makeup and Hair and Sound. So, oh, he had the makeup in this film. Yeah. Which I hadn't seen it when the Golden Globes came out and they were nominated for makeup and then they got nominated, I think, for an Oscar for the makeup. Just astounding. Mm-hmm. Like how mm-hmm. much his body gets beaten up and mm-hmm. oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one was I didn't expect, but it was just phenomenal. Uh so overall, very happy with the Revenant Steve. I was really happy with it. I was expecting it to not be as interesting mm-hmm. as it was, and I was transfixed the entire time. Very fantastic. Very yeah, I felt the same way. I was just uh, enthralled with it, uh, I think Inyarasu is going to be like the 
director for the next couple of years. I think everyone will now, Probably. after Birdman and this, will be just dying to see what his next project are. I think uh, Emmanuel Lebeski or uh, Chivo, as they'll call him, or Inyarato will reference him as, mm-hmm. is probably the best cinematographer working right now. I, uh, For my taste, at least, I think I love his work, Tree of Life, I thought, mm-hmm. uh, is just gorgeous. Oh, from the from the cinematography standpoint, you, I, I agree with you completely there. From the story yeah. standpoint, I was not a big fan. Oh, really? Yeah, of the of the Tree of Life. Oh, the Tree of Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From yeah, a yeah. cinematography standpoint, fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, I know you hate that. I know you don't like yeah, Tree yeah. of Life. Uh, but yeah, what he did there... The opening scene of Gravity, I think, laid the stage for what he did in Birdman. Mm. Uh, Birdman was just next level, but this, I think, uh, I think there's there's an element of gimmickiness to Birdman. I think which I think it did it well, but the idea of the one shot, right? Uh, but with this integrating long takes into just just beautiful shots and not mm-hmm. being almost restricted by the one shot, mm-hmm. uh, just played to his strengths just amazingly well. Yep. Uh, before we get out of here this week, yes, I want to give a quick review of The Big Short. Oh, without getting too spoilery. Okay, this is a movie I don't recommend seeing in the theater. Okay, there was probably only about eight people in the theater when I saw it, but it is a fascinating movie to watch in the way that they tell a very boring story. <laughs> okay, um, and and the information in this is super boring. Mm-hmm. This is not the comedy that the trailer makes it appear to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's real life events, but. It at times feels like you're watching a documentary, a real documentary. Mm-hmm. And then there are times where you feel like you're watching a reenactment to a documentary. <laughs> and then, um, you know, right in the middle of where it feels like you're watching a documentary, the actor breaks the fourth wall and addresses the audience. Oh, which is really weird. Uh, there's interesting flashbacks, jump forwards, back and forth that, that happen in this movie that I think are, are fascinating from the storytelling standpoint. And then because the housing market and loans and all this stuff is confusing to begin with, mm-hmm. when they get to a difficult concept to grasp, mm-hmm. they basically just stop the movie and say, hey, we need to explain this to you. <laughs> so at one point when they're trying to explain CODs, mm-hmm. I still couldn't tell you what a COD is. <laughs> at one point... Um, the main narrator actor guy, um, Chris, no, Ryan Reynolds, mm-hmm. uh, basically stops and says, I know COD sounds really confusing, right? So here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain it to you. And you <laughs> cut to Margot Robbie with her full on Australian accent in a bubble bath, explaining what a COD is in a, you know, just basically explaining it to you. And then afterwards she's like, okay, get the F out of here. And then you're back right into the story. And then there's what? another part where they're trying to explain, they're trying to explain, I think it was like a hyper loan or something, hyper security or something like this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, again, this is a really hard concept to grasp. And they just stop and they just, this is a hard concept to grasp. So here is this um, uh, economic psychologist or something and Selena Gomez gambling to explain it to you. And then they're at a, a, a blackjack <laughs> table and they're explaining how this bet and side bets and all these things start piling up which is kind of what was going on in the housing market. So it made it, it made it a little bit easier to understand what was going on. Uh-huh. It's, it's an interesting movie. It's a good movie. Mm-hmm. And there are, I mean, like everybody's in this movie. Like right. I didn't know Brad Pitt was in this movie Yeah, and he plays this little bit role, but he's really intense in this bit role that he plays. Huh. And I'm uh, just, you know, people are popping out of the woodwork left and right in this. And mm-hmm. it's very good. Even Christian Bale is really good in his portrayal of, of this one guy. Um, 
But I think you should watch it just from the way that they present a story and an idea. Yeah. Because it is just really weird where it's at first I was like, oh, is this kind of going to be kind of like The Office in the way that they're doing this pseudo documentary kind of thing? And then they're breaking the fourth wall and they're doing all this other stuff. And That's like, so strange. I mean, this is a boring movie yeah. because of the, the subject matter. Yeah, subject. But it's amazing in how they're telling it. That's so. I've been interested in this movie since I knew it was Adam McKay mm-hmm. who does all the Will Ferrell, essentially, yeah, yeah. you know, stepbrothers and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, but that you describing it is so off the wall that I'm so much more intrigued about this film that I can't wait for it to actually come out so I can watch it now. Yeah. I mean, it, I got it in the last day of the theater mm-hmm. that night. The last time we recorded, I was like, you know what? I'm going yeah. to go watch this movie right now. And I did. Yeah. But I, I, I do have it already ordered on iTunes. Yeah. But it's it's not one I think is worthy of a, a theater experience. Okay. Definitely worth a home viewing experience. All right. So well, it'll be interesting if this does anything. I'm. I'm so amazed that it's been nominated really, for the best picture, mm-hmm. but I can see why just from that weird, quirky storytelling method that it's using. Mm-hmm. So That's very interesting. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to it. Yep. Uh, so we'll wrap up this week's episode with there. Look at that. Two movies. Double the movie talk for the price of one free podcast. Uh, so that's it for this week's episode of Zach on Film. Head over to Majorspoilers.com where you can find all sorts of comic book news, movie news, television news, everything to get you through the week while you're not listening to a great Major Spoilers podcast. While you're there, click on that Amazon.com link where you can probably buy Birdman on Blu-ray or Gravity or The Tree of Life. You definitely can do that. All those great films you want to watch. It's not going to cost you any extra when you use that link, but a little bit will come back to Major Spoilers to help keep all the great content coming to you week after week after week. Next week, we'll be back with more film talk on Zach on Film. Podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.